You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. All of God's Word is profitable for us. All of God's Word has something to teach us about His character and what He means to teach us today. And so Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jochen, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon, These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amron, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amron took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amron being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishel, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, and daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Azir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, And she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? This is God's word. When we think of the Exodus story, we think of those that epic journey, right? The epic battles, the supernatural hand of God and his miraculous intervention in their life. And this portion of scripture seems so far from that kind of tone. Here we're faced with just the ordinary description of Moses's family tree. And so why does it have to be here? Most likely it authenticates Moses's and Aaron's true lineage as true Israelites, that they were a part of the family of God. Remember when Moses appeared out of the desert claiming to be the man that God called 
to rescue his people. Aaron had been appointed by God to be the spokesperson for for Moses. And by now, people had begun to doubt them. How do we know that you're really the ones that God has called? How do we know what you're saying is, is true? Perhaps people remember Moses as the one who was raised in Pharaoh's house and murdered an Egyptian and fled as a refugee to Midian where he has spent the last 40 years. They've heard stories about him. And maybe they doubt his allegiance. Why are you here? What's in it for you? Why would you come back at this time after seeing decades of our suffering? Maybe they wondered about his heritage. Maybe you're not a Hebrew. Maybe you're not one of us. And so there's every reason here to authenticate Moses and Aaron and their lineage, that they are members of God's people, that they are one of God's people, called out ones. It starts with the three sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Levi's sons are then the focus to show the lineage uh, to Moses and Aaron. And not only are the biblical genealogies historically important, but they give us insight into the character of God and the way of salvation for us. Don't skip over the genealogies. They teach us so much about God, so much about his plan of rescue for us. And so reflecting on this genealogy, I think we can see something about our individuality, our identity, and God's sovereignty. Our individuality, our identity, and God's sovereignty. Let's start with our individuality. When we think about our individuality, there's two common pitfalls that we fall into as a culture, as a people. First pit that we fall into is the pit called, it's all about me. When we think about our individual lives, we fall into that pit often that that everything is about me. My life is about me. Our distaste for genealogies draws out this blemish often in our hearts. And that is, this story isn't about me. I'm just going to skip it over. I know my name is not in there. I know this story is not about me. Let's get to a portion of Scripture that applies to me. When we think about the themes in Scripture of salvation and transformation and spiritual growth, and faith, hope, and love. We often think of those themes as individual themes, personal themes, as in my salvation, my hope, my love, the God that wants to show love to me, my forgiveness of my sins. And it becomes so personal, and often we read the Bible with these lenses that only look through in the scope of how it relates to me. Consider when someone posts a bunch of pictures on social media at an event that you are at. You know what you do. You just scroll down to the ones that you're in. (laughs) Oh, this is so wonderful. Let's get to the part where I'm in it. No? Yeah, anybody else do that? I'm guilty. I did that this week. Uh, You scroll down. Okay, you love love watching, you know, pictures of uh, someone else's vacation you didn't go on? Don't lie. (laughs) Do you ever read the Bible like that? When does this get to me? When does it get to the good part where it talks about me? Where's the part that talks about how things are going to go well for me or what's in it for me or how God wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy? Where did it get to the part where, where, where if I do something, then this is how God wants to shower his blessing on me? Let's get to the part that talks about overcoming difficulty and how I can 
do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Where do I get to the part where God's love never gives up on me? Where do I get to the part that when God will take care of me and never leave me? Genealogies have a way of exposing the me monster in all of us. And in a sense, this is, it's not about us. Primarily, it's not about us. It is about God, His character, and His plan to rescue His people. His immeasurable strength and His unrelenting compassion to rescue His people from the bondage of sin. And we have a short attention span when it comes to learning the history of people that we don't relate with. And so that's one pit of the, the kind of it's all about of, of individuality. Another pit is that we could call it the pit of none of it's about me, right? It's the, it's the opposite. of like this isn't about me. Some remove themselves completely from God's word and reading the Bible, they come to the Bible like it's a textbook of just, they're just learning to just soak up information, theology, doctrine about God. They're wanting to learn about God and so they don't see themselves in it. They don't enter into the story. But this genealogy is typical of the way that the Old Testament uses genealogies. And that is to introduce people who are relevant to the story and to remind us of our place within the flow of God's redemptive history. You see, this story, this genealogy reminds us of the importance of named individuality. That in a sense, it's not about us, but in another sense, it is so much about us. So much that God would name people, memorialized here in Scripture forever, people with history and family and children, people with a story. And God says, I use these people, real people that really lived, that had a life, that had a job, that had a family, real people that had hopes and dreams, and I plucked them out of their life and I used them for my purpose Real stories. God not only has a plan for the salvation of people in general, but he has an intimate, personal relationship with every individual in his family. God sought out to rescue his people, but he wants us to know that he names his people and has an individual plan for each and every one of them. There are no little people in the family of God. There are no insignificant people in the history of God's redemptive story. If it were the end of the world, what kind of people would you need for society to continue to go on? These are conversations that guys have, I think, that when we get together. So if the end of the world, who do we need, really? (laughs) The engineers are always the first to raise their hand. Without us, you're getting nowhere, right? Good luck trying to, trying to survive without us. Imagine life without clean water, safe infrastructure, transportation, any kind of communication with anybody outside of the room that you're in. Good luck. And then the doctors and nurses say, well, you need us. Imagine, imagine life without you know, life-saving medical interventions and no you know, disease-curing medicine. And engineers raise their hand again, yeah, but who's going to make that equipment? And... <laughs> Law enforcement want you to imagine a world of chaos without them and a world of chaos and, you know, hypothetically thinking about, like, what would life look like without any rule of law or order. 
what would happen, this is going to happen with churches too. You know, what are the people that are most important in the church? Who could we do without? I'm not asking you to submit names. I'm just saying, <laughs> but we can think like that sometimes. Who are the little people in church? Who are the big people? Who are the, who are the essential people? Who are the important ones, the ones that are most beneficial to the family of God? Who can we do without in the family of God? One of the ways that God often glorifies himself is by extending his grace to ordinary, seemingly insignificant and normal people as a way of expressing to the church that there are no little people in the family of God. As far as God is concerned, there is no one in the family of God that we can do without. Just look at Moses' family tree. These families received the children, their children as gifts from God and gave them names that would serve to them and to anyone who called them by their name as permanent reminders of God's goodness and grace. Palu's parents must have been pretty demanding parents because his name means extraordinary. <laughs> That's a, quite an identity to live up to, isn't it? Extraordinary, come here. <laughs> Cora literally means baldy. <laughs> I think we know what he looked like when he was born. Nepheg means clumsy. I know. Who broke, you know, it's like, who broke that? Nepheg. <laughs> Duh. Shawl means prayer's answer. I wonder how long Shawl's mother prayed. His father. Even if we didn't know anything about these people, we know that they are ordinary people with ordinary stories made in the image of God and included in God's saving plan even baldy and clumsy and extraordinary that I'm sure did not live up to his name. And prayer's answer that at times was probably felt like a curse. Ordinary people made in the image of God, in the family tree of God's saving plan, memorialized forever for us to know, and that's all we know of them. They are not extraordinary. Did you notice what's happening with Amron? He married his father's sister. And you're thinking, yeah, that's his aunt. Okay? Moses' mother was his grand aunt. These names in the Bible tell us something about our individuality. With all of our warts, with all of our mess, with all of our sin, with all of our failures, God still delights in using us in His plan. He has a plan to save His people. And within that plan, there are real people that He knows and cares about. And no one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. Genealogies do not exist in the Bible primarily so that we can come to know who these people are, but to show us the God who knows who these people are. God says, I know Moses' mom. I, I know what his dad did. I know their story. I know their failures. 
I know the chaos in their home. I know the conflict. I know the, the interpersonal uh, frictions and fractions that occurred throughout generations in their family. I know the pain that was experienced. I know the disappointment that the parents felt for their rebellious children, and I know the, the gratitude that they felt for the, the children that God had given to them after seasons of prayer. There are some big skeletons in the closet of Moses and Aaron's family tree. And yet it was this Moses and this Aaron who God chose to save his people. Moses and Aaron, brothers, warts and all, were caught up in God's plan. This is the point emphasized in chapter 627 it was, where it says, It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. We were meant to, the people were meant to say, wait, this Moses? That Moses? Wait, wait, Jochebed's grandnephew. You're t- and, you know, you're telling me that Jochebed's grandnephew slash son is the one that God chose to rescue his people from slavery? God says, that very same, the very same one. You could could almost hear that note of astonishment behind his words. In one sense, they're ordinary human clay, just regular people, but also superpower reality, uh, royalty in the family of God. Our mere humanity in the hand and plan of God is simultaneously ordinary and extraordinary. That's the gracious work of God. We have this named individuality. You have a named individuality, but yet you are not individual. You are not separated. You are connected in the family of God, adopted into a family with a history and a story. Warts and all, failures and all, sin and all. It doesn't stop God from what he wants to do with you and he knows you and calls you by name. And it's, the point isn't if other people come to know you. It's that God knows you. He knows your story and it doesn't stop him from giving everything to save you, to be with you. He says, I will be your people. I will be your God. I will be with you and there will never be a time when when I'm distant from you. And then he also says, and I know what you've done and I know who you are. I know how you have failed and I know how you still doubt. But that doesn't stop me. And that's the gracious work of God. Genealogy also says something also about our identity Moses had experienced a long, long probation in Midian, right? Four decades waiting as a result of his failures before coming to the turning point in his life where God commanded or commissioned him to to go into Egypt and to talk to Pharaoh and to rescue his people from slavery. So much of the Exodus story is, uh, is told from a standpoint of what happens to Moses and what God calls Moses into. And not much is talked about how Moses really felt in the midst of that. But every once in a while, we get the curtain kind of pulled back and we get to actually see what's in the heart of Moses and how he felt when all this was going on. His emotional experience in it all. Moses had been rejected by his people He had been rejected by Pharaoh. He had been in exile for 40 years. And when God appears to him and tells him to go to Egypt, he demonstrates his intense insecurity and his lack of confidence before God. 
When God appears to Moses, Moses had resigned himself to a life defined by his failures. Failure for Moses had bitten deeply into his life. It had bitten deeply into his identity, who he is, and what his purpose he thought in life would be was was shaped by his past failures. Remember Moses' first question when God made himself known to him at the burning bush, and Moses said, who am I? Five times he would fight with God and answer God and, and contradict God and say, no, find somebody else. Eventually he would, he would express rebellion in his attitude to God and say, no, find somebody else. And God said, no, I'm, you're my man, warts and all. He had no sense of self-worth or awareness of his ability, no desire to change or confidence in the face of challenges that lay ahead for him. Maybe you've heard a grandparent, because I haven't heard many young people say this, but when they say, my get up and go has gone up and went. (laughs) You ever heard that? That's Moses. I got nothing left. I got nothing left in me. That's Moses. A man like this is so easy to identify with. Sometimes our failures in life or the trauma of our rejection evaporate our sense of dignity and immeasurable worth to God. It paints a picture for us of how we think God relates to us and values us and loves us or cares for us or how he, what kind of future we would have with him and Well, surely God has kind of given me enough chances and my life of failure is now reaping the the rewards of that failure and the consequences. I'm just not going to be as close to God as I had hoped. I'm just not going to feel his peace as strongly as I had desired. That's just not going to be my future because of my past. And yet here is Moses, this very same Moses, God's chosen man. One of the things our modern culture has invited people into is to ask for themselves, who am I? One of the things our culture has invited us into is to decide for ourselves who we are. Identity, therefore, has become a flexible aspect of our existence. And we can, and in some ways been encouraged to, reinvent ourselves as often as we need to. But God shows us that our identity is not something that that we create, but our identity is something that is given to us by our Creator. And that means our value, our worth, our self-esteem, our our lovability has become some it's not something that we achieve. It is It is something that has been given to us. And when we view it as something that we achieve in our life, it will create intense emotional, relational, psychological distress. Constantly asking that question, who am I? Do I matter? Am I important? Am I lovable and do people care about me? Like Moses, we tend to fall back on our same worries and fears when God leads us down a path that we don't want to go down. We revert back to those same fears and insecurities Take some Christian years, even decades, their whole life to get beyond those debilitating lies that say that our worth is determined by what we acquire or what we can accomplish. Or our worth is based on how people treat us. 
Here we see Moses in all the reality of the human condition that we can relate with. And yet we see the basis of how he became a new, transformed man. Moses does make a crucial transformation in his life. We see it happening before our eyes in this passage and in the chapter to come and the one previous. It is here in these couple chapters we see this transformation take shape from doubt to confidence, from insecurity to hope. How does it happen for him and how does it happen for us? It happens as Moses becomes a man who had no words other than the words that God had given to him, no actions other than those God had commanded of him, and no position except the position of a man sent by God. And God had to beat him down so much to remove all of those identities that he was resting in. The words that he could speak, and God says, I will be with your mouth and give you the words to speak. The identity that he had, his position with the people, they've already rejected me. And he says, it is the position you have with me that matters more than anything. Previously, Moses was a man of many words. He said everything that he could to God, and he had an answer for everything God had told him to do. Many actions, according to his own instincts, he took his life into his own hands, and it led him only into failure. But Moses had learned his lesson And his confidence in his life now and his identity is not based on his past or his future or his successes or what he says or doesn't says. His identity now is on the word of God that never fails. God would convince him and say, it is what matters is the word that I speak to you and I will be with you. And my plans will succeed no matter what. And walking in that confidence becomes Moses' unshakable foundation. His lesson is also our lesson. The lesson that he had to learn is a lesson that you and I need to learn as well. That God is sovereign. That he is who he says he is. And our past does not determine the outcome of our lives. Standing at the blank page before me... Wrong. No. (laughs) Those pages are not blank. (laughs) Sorry. God does not excuse our sin, nor is his absolute sovereignty ever knocked off course by our sin. Rather, he works his purposes out in our lives from one season to the next. There's no plan B. None of us want failure and few of us really know what to do when failure comes our way or find failure something easy to admit. Few of us really enjoy or have the courage to say, I messed up, I am sorry, and yet we see God using our failures to bring about his desired purposes for our lives. Imagine your name were here. Imagine your name were here in this passage forever memorialized in God's Word, what would they say about you? Imagine your life, your hidden thoughts, your private life, your hidden struggles was all over the internet, all over social media, was on a a, a mini-series on Netflix. 
your life broadcast for everyone to see? What would they see about you? What if your name was memorialized forever in Scripture? Would it make your family proud? Would it make the family tree like that much stronger? Or would it be a blemish? Would you feel humiliated and embarrassed? Would you feel mighty and courageous? You know, what Moses needed to learn was that it wasn't what he was able to offer God or his family that mattered. But what mattered was that God's word never fails and his purposes never fail. And what he ultimately wanted to do through Moses would bring about a a greater rescue. Because Moses isn't the only savior to come from this family, family tree but a greater Savior who we know shares this same family tree, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus felt, uh, he felt it a, a, a pleasure to identify with this messed up family. Aaron's wife, Eli Sheba, and his is the daughter of Aminadab, who's included in King David's family from whom's family comes Jesus Christ. Even in the days of Moses and Aaron, God was working out His plan to send an even greater Savior to deliver His people from their sins. Jesus would enter this messed up family tree where there was not only incest and failure, but there was rebellion. There was uh, rioting within the family of God. There was There was a coup within Moses' family to get Moses out of power. There were people intensely trying to thwart God's plans, and Jesus entered into that family tree, filled with failures, with weaknesses, with baldies and (laughs) overbearing parents, the clumsy, the insignificant. And what Jesus would do on the cross sure looked like just another failure in a long list of failures. But what he would do beyond the grave when he rose again from the grave is anything but failure. He would show the resurrection power, the triumph over weakness and failure, our only hope for a person who has a family tree filled with weakness and failure and, and, and who we, we often find ourselves right in the midst of that. Jesus delighted and delights identifying with you. There is nothing greater of a joy to our God than to see his messed up family turning to him as their only hope. There's no greater pleasure and no greater joy than to see his children turn from their sins and to trust in him. Jesus would be betrayed and beaten and mocked and killed. He would be buried and then he would rise again. Nothing gets God off course from his plans to bring about the rescue of his people. Not our sin, not even death itself. There's no greater demonstration of this than the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the lesson Moses had come to learn is the one that you and I must also come to learn. But we are actually in a more privileged position than Moses is. We have more information. We have more of the story. 
Moses trusted in the word of God. He had to take God at his word, which says he will be with him and he will rescue his people out of slavery. We are called to trust in the word of God just the same, but we have more. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God became known to us, took on our life, entered into our family, became our sin, died for us, intercedes in us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. He promises to never, never be away from us. And at the cross, God's loving care is written out in the largest letters that you could ever read, which says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The promise uh, ultimately filled as Jesus died. We are rescued and Jesus is judged. Here, God tells Moses, I will rescue you by with my outstretched arms and with mighty acts of judgment. And we see that manifested in a short term with Pharaoh, with Israel's rescue. But when Jesus stretches out his arms on the cross, we see God's love poured out for us. And when God judges his son, we see that he takes the judgment for our sin. He takes our place. When you're wondering what God is doing, when you're wondering what he's doing in your life, when you doubt his kindness, or when you're struggling to trust in him, look at Jesus. See his outstretched arms. See that his word never fails. 